My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. I got a total FOMO Sapiens on the show today. We're talking about not following the crowd. This guy made his own path, and it's a great one. His name is Zamir Kassam, and he is the CEO and chief designer of Zamir Kassam Fine Jewelry. And this guy went from spreadsheets to gemstones, from PowerPoint to pearls. I could keep going all day. Now, the story here is pretty cool. Uh, With a background as unique as the jewelry he designs, Zamir started out on a totally different path. He was at McKinsey & Company. Then he went to Harvard Business School, and then he pivoted into the world of jewelry at De Beers, Louis Vuitton. Now he's emerged as a major player, one of the most innovative thinkers in the global jewelry industry, where he is the founder and CEO of Zamir Kassam Fine Jewelry, which he launched in 2011. Here's the thing. This company is based in Manhattan, but it caters to people worldwide, and it makes waves. And in fact, in February, Samir placed third in Vogue magazine's annual list of the most quote-unquote dream-worthy engagement rings, ahead of brands like Van Cleef, Graf, and David Yurman. And those are big ones. So not bad at all, my friend. Not bad for a brand that started just about 10 years ago. Pretty impressive. And you're going to hear today the story. And this is, again, you know, like last week's show, It's this is about getting inside the head of an entrepreneur and understanding the decisions that he has made along the path, leaving the safe place, you know, the McKinsey and Company of the World, great place, MTV, places like that, and then jumping off into the world of entrepreneurship. And it has not always been easy, of course, very hard times, particularly the pandemic, which we get into right off the bat. So you're going to love the story and you're going to find it super inspiring. I certainly did. Now, I got to ask you this little small favor because I've known Zamir a long time. I've watched him build this business. I met him years ago at an Oscars party. And I remember thinking like, jewelry, what? How does one do that? But he has built and built and built. So go check out his website. Zamir Kassam, that's Z-A-M-E-E-R-K-A-S-S-A-M.com. If you're in the business of looking for a ring right now, if that's what you need, go check it out. He has other stuff too. Just go check it out and you'll see why I am raving about it. And now onto the interview. As you know, I like to go deep early. And so I started with my favorite question, asking Zamir this, what's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? There's a bunch, but I would say... The most formative decision is whether or not I shut down my company. That mm-hmm. was during the pandemic. Wow. Okay, you can't just leave us there. Tell us more. <laughs> well, oh so I, I run a jewelry business that doesn't have stores. We don't sell online. It's all very personal. It's literally person to person where we tell yeah. love stories through design. And when the pandemic happened, we couldn't meet with people. And so literally business went to zero. We have no other alternatives on how we can generate revenue. And I have a team of people that needed to be fed and I had to take care of them. So I literally shut down as everyone else shut down. But then I I had to decide, do I fully shut down, liquidate and move into something different? 
because I didn't imagine how this business could possibly survive that moment in time. And I remember sitting in this very room, I'm in my apartment in Manhattan, I remember sitting on the floor crying to myself. This wasn't meant to be such a sad starter, <laughs> but crying to myself um, and just thinking like, how am I going to live life? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm single. I have no kids. My business is everything. I've literally built it with all of my blood, sweat and tears and now it's gone. And I started looking at the sketches that I made when I was at business school <clears throat> and the sketches that I did when I started the business and started rereading the love stories of the people that I've had the chance to design for. And I felt like if nothing else, I'm going to be kept company by the memories of these people who've let me in their lives. And through reading through those stories, I felt like I can't let this go. I have to fight harder. And I posted about that actually on social media. And one of my clients shared with a professor at Harvard Business School and that led to them calling me and, and asking if they could follow and track how this super personal business, and honestly, this, this human being, like this guy, Zamir, is dealing with this kind of horrible moment in time. And I, I was honored, and of course I said yes, and that led to not only them writing a case about it and teaching it at HBS, but so much incredible help and mentorship by the students and faculty that I didn't have to shut down the business. And we figured out how to be remote, we figured out how to do things in a different way, and I didn't have to go into, you know, full depression, which was likely mm. to happen because this is such a big part of my life. Um, and that was, I mean, that was certainly the most formative decision I've ever had to make. I remember, I don't know what day it was, it was March something 2020. And I, my book was coming out two months later and I had a whole slate of speaking and other things. And there was one day, it was like, <laughs> I don't know, bloody Sunday or something. But literally everything in my life got canceled in a three-hour period. And this hopelessness, and you're sort of like, what am I going to do? And so mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, many of us are there, were there with you at that time. It's amazing to hear how that affected you and how you came out of it and how it turned into sort of this, this completely unexpected you know, win, as it were, and, and, and a lot of support from people. And we'll talk about that because your business is very different. And I'd love, you know, first of all, everybody, just so you know, Zamir, good old Zamir, it's 4.30 p.m. in New York City. <laughs> Zamir's got a champagne out because it is, somebody's getting engaged somewhere and that means, you know, there's joy in the world. Yeah, I mean, if we're not going to celebrate, what are we going to do? We got to celebrate whenever we can. Well, I have, unfortunately, all I have is like L.L. Bean, Nalgene with water in it, but I am emotionally drinking champagne. Let's talk about your business because it is, a, it's a real, every time I tell people about what you're doing, it, it's, it's, it's different. What, what is the product and what is, what is the process that you go through? Yeah. Well, look, I, I come from, from a background where my parents had jewelry stores and I remember waking up every day, sitting in the stores and waiting for people to walk in and buy a ring and propose. And it was a beautiful thing to be part of their lives when they're celebrating these milestones, but it always felt so sad and transactional. Mm -hmm. And then many years later, I did a bunch of different things in the jewelry industry and outside the jewelry industry. But I realized that what I actually love the most is not the idea of a diamond or a band or an earring or anything like that. It's, it's that there's someone, a human being who loves someone else enough that they want to present something that shows that love and gratitude. And I honestly felt like everything I was doing in every part of this industry was not enough. Like it kind of sucked. Like the best thing we had to offer 
was a bigger, more expensive rock on another generic band. So when I started the business, the idea was that we could create pieces of jewelry that secretly tell the story of how someone feels about someone else. And it doesn't have to be obvious in the design. It can be completely hidden. So gemstones that are hidden on the inside of the band that tell the story of the moment that he knew she was the one for him. Or that there's carvings on the inside of the band that tell the story of you know the, the, the few words he asked her when he asked her out on their first date carved in his handwriting. And all of these different ways, and there's thousands of ways, are each unique and individual to that one particular human being and their connection with someone else. And so the product is as much a service as it is a product. The product is a piece of jewelry that's timeless and classic, but secretly tells the story of a milestone in someone's life and how they feel. It's done through a process, which I think is explicitly the opposite of what you do in the jewelry industry. So there's three steps. It starts with a 30 minute tutorial to learn about diamonds. Then there's a conversation, which we call the discovery, which is not unlike this, Patrick, where someone is sitting across the table and we learn a little bit about their relationship, like the basics of how they met how they fell in love only with one person, not the couple, because we always want to make sure that we get the undiluted version of how someone feels. It's like the newlywed the game. <laughs> I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's why you don't do it with a couple. Like when yeah. you talk to two people, you always get the, the lowest common denominator. When you talk to one person with no one around, maybe a glass of champagne or scotch, mm. and, you, and, and also ideally when they're a stranger, you'd be surprised at the beautiful things they share about the person they love and typically things that they've never shared with that person. And so we learn those in the second step and that takes me to the third step, which is where my storytellers, which is our client facing people, will share the sketches that I've made that tell the story in different ways, almost like a menu of options. And then diamonds that are from the low end of the budget to the high end, whether it's $5,000 or 50,000 or whatever it is. And that's when the person decides on how their story is gonna be told. We pull the trigger and we make the piece of jewelry here in New York. And you can imagine, like, there's no, like, trying rings on. There's no surfing the internet and looking at different, you know, like, aggregators. It's all person to person, human to human. And in doing that, it's, like, I think the funnest thing in the world, not just for the woman or man who's proposing or celebrating the milestone, but, but for me, right? Like, for me and my team, it's so fun. We get to sit and learn people's love stories, their family stories, their family histories. Like, I've had clients who are from you know, the, the, the wildest parts of Nigeria. And I can tell you that their love stories are totally different than someone who met at HBS, but the emotions are exactly the same. And I get to do this every hour of every day. I mean, it's so, it's so much fun. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. 
I love the storytelling element because people, you know, it's 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 talked about now. I think people talk about storytelling, but we forget that like every great pitch, every great book, great store, uh, sort of article that you read, and a lot of times if it's done well, products. If the story is there, you decommoditize something that maybe the world in the like the wedding industry sucked all the fun out of this whole process, and you have through storytelling, you're putting it back in which is really powerful. Well, you know, I, I appreciate that, but that was never my intention. Like, I actually mm-hmm. hate the word storytelling. I feel like it's become this Let's come up with an alternative. <laughs> what's your alternative? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, we don't have stories, to use that right? word. Okay, it's, fine. It's literally love stories. Like, like I'm not creating a story about a brand or a story about mm-hmm. a design. It's, it's actually Zamir sitting down with Anthony or Peter or whoever it is and learning about why. And I, I often start with like, why is she, how do you know she's the one for you? Mm-hmm. And you can like every guy's like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, I mean, mm-hmm. dude, you're not my therapist. You're my jeweler. I just need, <laughs> I need a rock on the bat. I'm like, take a step back. You know, I know that, it's a, but you are about to propose to this person, or you have spent 20 years with him or her, and you have these kids, and like, what is it about them? Like, tell me. I want to know. I really want to know, right? I really want to know because then I can sit back in the in the dark hours of the night. Last night at two in the morning, I was sketching. My sketchbook is in front of me. And I'm a human being too. Like my team, we're all people. And what we get to do is we get to learn these stories and then we have to respect them and honor them. And it's like, why would I want to even bother being a jeweler or being in fashion or being in luxury or being in restaurants or anything if I didn't truly get a sense of what it meant to someone? And so when we're telling a story, it's not like the branding and storytelling. It's like, no, I'm actually asking you, you what is the story? How did you meet? When did you meet her parents? Did they like you? You know, what was the hardest thing you guys got through? What was the best thing you got through? What do you see your future like with him? And that's the story that I get to receive. And also it's typically only in an hour. So it's not like it goes on forever. In one hour, you'd be shocked how much I can learn. And then I sit down and I put on some music and I pour myself a glass of champagne and I get to sketch that story into life. So it totally does create a very different experience than the industry. I do think that rings became a commodity and I also stopped caring about it. This is a way that I feel like I really, I love it. And I will always care about this. Like I will do this until I die. Yeah. It's less about the object. I mean, the object is a vessel for a lot more than just how many carrots you have. Now, Mm -hmm. Zamir, you, you know, you come out of a pretty classical business background. You know, as you mentioned, you went to the business school up at Harvard. You did your undergrad at the business at business school at Ivy in Canada. Shout out to Canada, everybody. Uh, and <laughs> then you worked at McKinsey and Company, which is, you know, it's like consulting. It's a great firm, but it's kind of like a, that's a middle of the road kind of thing. Not a lot of people coming out of there starting jewelry businesses. People start companies. It's not like, you know, it's entrepreneurial place, but y- you had this kind of different idea. When did you get the idea and how did you figure out how to actually go out and do it? Well, look, I feel like the McKinsey time and my time at MTV, where I was working in M&A in India, like totally mm. different, totally different worlds from where I am now. But the lessons were like massive. You know, I learned how to, how to listen actively at McKinsey and how to work closely with small teams of people and then how to tell a story, right? Like, for better or worse, in, in you know, in consulting, you learn about being succinct. You learn about using time effectively, and you learn how to how to tell a story in a minute if you have a minute with a client. Mm. And that was pretty formative when I think about what I do now. 
at MTV, I got the chance to work with creative people. And like, I mean, creative people, like not people who are creative and so no offense, but like people who are creative in finance or people who are creative in, yeah. you know, consulting. I'm so, I mean, crea- like I'm so creative. I added an extra cell to that Excel spreadsheet and I colored it I green. Mean, it's so colorful. I'm not yeah. kidding, right? Like that's, that's how people, but these are people who like, they dream the dream. Like you, you wake up and the mm. next day they've, they've created an entire concept for a show that's about Martians that are landing on this place in a different language. And it's like, and remember, it's MTV Nickelodeon and VH1. Most of the content I worked on is Nickelodeon. So really creative people. And I think that made me realize that the world is full of so much talent, so much excitement, so much visual and like audio, like audio visual beauty that we just don't get a chance to. I, did, I definitely didn't get, get a chance to interact with. And I, I never wanted my life to just be spreadsheets and, you know, clients and all that. So that, those are seeds that were planted. What I didn't know is how do I create a business out of this or a life out of this? And so that's when I applied to business school and I got in. Um, and for you, and I know, Patrick, you know this because we do share some Canadian history, but my parents were refugees from East Africa. They mm-hmm. were thrown on planes in Tanzania. They got to Canada in 1971. They worked as, you know, 7-Eleven attendants like Abu in real life. So the idea, my parents didn't go to college. My brothers didn't go to college. The idea that I could go to Harvard was not mm-hmm. like a, wasn't like a strategic, oh, that's what I'm going to figure out. It was like a dream for my ancestors kind of thing. I worked Mm. my butt off. And that's why it didn't make sense really because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just, I really wanted to get in. And I really wanted to have that call. And it was midnight in India and I called my dad and I told him I got in and I cried and he cried. And like, I remember just feeling like, okay, now, now, what do I want to do? And against all odds, I felt like actually I want to be in jewelry. <laughs> and my parents were like, are you kidding? Like you grew up in a little jewelry store in Vancouver. I was selling Mickey Mouse watches as an 11 year old. Like I can and should have moved on from that, but it was just, it was ingrained in me. I wanted to be in jewelry. And so it was at HBS that I decided I wanted to go into the industry. I didn't know how. And so I ended up getting an amazing summer internship in London. Uh, my friend Imran Ahmed, who runs Business of Fashion, um, actually connected me with this woman, Aliyah Nedengadi, who was running uh, De Beers Louis Vuitton's marketing. And she took me in as a summer intern, unpaid, which by the way is crazy to say, but I did an unpaid that's, internship. That's amazing. Yeah. That, that is no, because you, you, so, you could have made like 15, 20K. That's what people get. And you went in and you didn't take anything. I mean, you didn't get anything. That's, that, that's no, a commitment. No, and, and, and on top of that, you two years in, in working in India was rupee salary. So like, oh, <laughs> I wasn't wow. coming in with any savings. Let me talk, yep. tell you that. But ultimately, I had an amazing time working in the jewelry industry again. I still wasn't sure what I'd do. I got a full-time job working as the head of bridal and classics for De Beers Diamond Jewelers, which is part of LVMH. Incredible experience. I mean, Patrick, I was a kid from Vancouver who was working in LVMH, fresh out of MBA. Mm. One of the only people that I knew who got a job like that and who had a passion for it. So I was a bit of a poster child. I got to learn about marketing from LVMH and diamonds from De Beers and go to the mines in Botswana and all this amazing stuff. And I was like, yes, like, wow. Except every day I'd feel my soul getting more and more crushed. I'd come home and I'd feel so empty. And I absolutely don't want to make any mistake. It was an honor. It was an extraordinary honor to work for these incredible companies. But luxury goods is all about I mean, it's all about creating a dream, but then yeah. pricing that dream at ever-increasing pricing, making the product more and more generic, at least at that time and in the jewelry 
part of the industry, also finding ways to bring the co- the cost down. And it just felt like we were becoming more generic, more transactional. And when a guy or a woman walked into the store and bought a ring to propose to the one that they loved, it just made me feel so damn sad that it was the same skew as every other person in every other store all over the world. It's like, we, we have to do better. And that was when I knew one thing, Patrick, I knew that I wasn't happy. I actually yeah. flew here to New York on a work trip and it was Newport, my classmate from business school, who said to me, she's like, oh, you seem like, you know, kind of down. And I'm like, no, everything's great. And she's like, but you feel, you look a little deflated. And there was a bowl of ramen in the East Village and it was steaming. And I remember just starting to cry in this like bowl of ramen, like uncontrollably. And I was like, I just, I don't think that this is what I thought it was going to be, but I don't know what else I would do. And she, like any amazing friend I think would do, was like, just quit. Just quit and come here. And so I literally quit the next day. It was a few months before my bonus. So I had a $160,000 student loan, which I didn't get any chance to pay off any of. Couldn't call my immigrant parents and tell them that I quit a job with no money. So I couldn't tell them I, I had nothing. And so I slept on a couch in the East Village for seven months. And it was during sleeping on that couch with Newport and her four female roommates. And I say that because one bathroom, five of us, and I take my time in the bathroom. <laughs> so it was not, it was not, it was not a pleasant experience. I loved, I loved these, I loved them all. Um, it was then that I started to meet people who were asked, who would ask me to design a ring for them. And I remember one of my classmates, Simon, is like, well, would you design this ring for Pooja? You know her. And I was like, well, of course, you know, it, it's a, you know, round diamond on a band. It's not rocket science. But like, humor me, like, why do you want to marry her? And as I said earlier, he was like laughing. He's like, dude, what are you asking me? I was like, well, just let's just remind me, like, how'd you meet? How'd you fall in love? And ultimately got to the story where he shared that they were on a trip to uh, the Algarve in Portugal. And they're sitting on the sand right on the coast. And like, it's super romantic. And he's like, wow, she's smart. She's beautiful. I'm having fun. But like, man, I really want to surf. So he like turns to her and says, hey, Pooj, this is so, I, you, you're great, but can I just meet you at the hotel in like three hours? I just really want to go surfing. And she looks at him and she's like, I will school you on the waves. And that's hmm. when he realized that she's also this athletic, fun, competitive co-pilot on the adventure of a lifetime with him. And so then he, you know, as you shared all these bits of the story, we created prongs that told the story gently of where she's from in India. And we had little gemstones of his British heritage. But on the inside of the band touching her skin, we carved the exact surfboard that they were surfing on in the Algarve. And we put little gemstones on that surfing board that told the story of some other parts of their relationship. And that was the first ring that ever made that told a story. And when she and I spoke about it afterwards, she was crying, she was so happy. And I'm like, Pooj, like, is it the diamond? Is it the design? She's like, no, I don't care. Like I literally could have proposed with a blade of grass. Mm. It's that took the time to tell you about Portugal. Like, first of all, he's a busy guy. And second of all, he's not quote unquote that romantic. It's like our personal story. And he shared that with you. And that was when I knew, and I get goosebumps right now, right? Thinking Mm -hmm. about it. I'm like, this is what it's about. It's about enabling love. It's about giving someone a chance to say the things that they can't say in a way that someone else will never forget. FOMO. FOMO. 
the the story here i just want to i want to go back and and trace the whole thing before you know because what i'm hearing from you and what's what's special because is that you're doing the process that people don't necessarily talk about but is a series of steps that maximizes your chance of success like it's still entrepreneurship so the chances that you succeed you know we'll see but you had this vision it was deeply tied into who you are as a human being. You then go out and have the humility to work in the industry unpaid to get your foot in the door. I mean, this is like some stuff out of like, you know, Horatio Alger, although apparently he was a bad guy after all. But, you know, the concepts are there. Uh, Google Horatio Alger if, if you want to know more. And then you go out, you work in the industry, you get experience. You see what the industry is doing well and what in your opinion is missing. And then you go out and you figure out something that solves the problem that you have noticed. And you come out and you then do your workshopping at MVP. That's well, more than an MVP, but you sort of figure out the product with an initial customer. You go deep, you produce something, and that is your first win. And it sets you up to have a case study, a great product, evangelists, people who believe in what you're doing. And from there, you start launching your business. Is that a fair encapsulation of how you got started? Not at all. I appreciate it. I love the way you look back and you connect the dots in this beautiful way. <laughs> it's not supposed to say no to me on my show, it's but keep going. literally no. So <laughs> no, let me share. There's a few things that I think are important. So first of all, okay. I didn't have a vision of how I could solve a problem that wasn't solved. I was just miserable. Like Patrick, I was miserable. I had, okay. yeah, there's eight hours of work, 10 hours of work, 12 hours of work if you're working. And I was miserable for all of them. And so what I was solving for is like, how can I be happier? What can I do? And so that's why the business started as a hobby. I was consulting mm. to make money with anyone and everyone. I was consulting with Nokia and Helsinki and a gemstone company in India. I was up all night working a call center at one point after HBS, before I started this. While I was doing this as a hobby, because it was just filling my free time with something that was joyous, and so that's how it really started. It wasn't this grand vision? And but let me let me resource. push you back. Let me push back a little bit on that. So okay, <laughs> fine. But let me ask you then. So th what you just told me is you're solving a problem for you, but True. the product you designed was a solution for other people's problems. So then. You know, I hear you, but there was something in there that you saw something that was missing because otherwise you would have never designed a product that addressed it. Totally. No, that it is totally fair that I felt like if I were the guy, typically guys, I don't mean to be heteronormative, but like if I'm a guy mm -hmm. buying a ring, it sucks. And mm -hmm. if I'm the guy selling the ring, by the way, it sucks. So solving my problem for having fun and being happy was also clearly creating something that was far more exciting and better value and all that for the client, but there is one other thing that I had and that was extraordinarily important, which was a close circle of incredibly good friends. Mm -hmm. The kind of friends who would look at me and say, you're not happy and you're lying to yourself. And the same friends who'd say, wow, you're really happy doing this thing. I'm going to help you. I'm going to call my mom and force my dad to make a ring for her the way that you do this. So we can test this out. I'm going to call up my sister and have her call the people at Vogue and have them interview you because you don't have a press person, you don't have a publicist. You know, it, it literally was this close group of friends who led to everything. And I think that was a significant success factor in where I am today, even though it's still a small business and 
you know, all of that. But I don't think I'd have it without those, those incredibly supportive friends. So if you were to draw, tease out the lessons for folks listening who say, like somebody wants to replicate your, your process, what would be for you the big takeaways of what you just told me, that, you know, the entire story? Well, I think three things, starting with self, right? Like number mm -hmm. one, again, I'm spending all my time doing this and I can only speak for myself. I love it. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't love it, I would hate it. You know, like if I don't love something at this age and stage in life, it really sucks because the, the, the opportunity cost is the person you love and your family and your parents and all the other things. So I would start with like, what do I really love? Right. And if founder product fit, one, right? It's, it's all about yeah. that fit between the founder and what they do all day. And, and, and passion behind it. And there's mm -hmm. some element of purpose. Like, do you feel like you're living and doing something that's actually bringing the world and people joy. For me, that's important. So that's number one. Yep. I think number two, let's be clear, this is a business, right? This is not a non-for-profit. I'm not doing this as a side hustle. This is a business. So the business model has to be designed to support this thing that you love. It can't falter. You can't have it all. And so the idea of not having stores, doing no marketing, having no inventory so that I don't have to get overwhelmed with the debt that jewelry companies do. And I don't have, you know, that has to be crystal clear, which also means that when I get these extraordinary moments in time, like if Neiman Marcus wanted to have uh, a line of jewelry that I would design for them, which I was having these conversations with them. And by the way, Patrick, again, little Zamir from Vancouver down in Dallas, I was like drunk on the excitement. Yeah. But then ultimately I had to sit back and say, no, like that doesn't fit with the business model. But then the third thing I would say is to, to get started quickly, to test things out. Like the whole idea of building a business plan, finding the investors, product market fit, doing it just, it's, there's so, it's so long in this day and age that I would just try with a small product and see if someone buys it. If it's a service business, see if someone wants the service, even if it's like a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks. Even if it's starting with a friend, but then go to someone who's not a friend and make sure they pay for it. Because it's those real life moments where I made the first ring for Simon, I made Newport's mom's earrings, I made that piece for Lorena. Like in every single real moment where money was exchanged for this thing that I'm offering them, it's when I learned the lessons. It's when I got better and better and better. And again, there's no, we didn't take on debt, we don't have investors. So this was very much funded by and designed by my first customers, the first clients. So if it's a business like mine that someone is thinking of starting, and please, by all means, please do. And if you're in jewelry, do it also, because the world could use more thoughtfulness. Um, I would just get started with something small and learn in a steady, beautiful, enjoyable pace. Yeah, that's the really hard part about it. You know, I think about this a lot these days is that when you leave the corporate world, like most people when they leave their job are pretty darn happy. And so you have that excitement. We're going to start this thing and you get working on it and you're doing all the stuff and you're putting together the way, you know, you're getting all the basic stuff to just to get going. And then there becomes this moment when it's sort of like, are we going to go live or not? Are we going to go tell people about this or not? And it's scary because especially if you're a first timer, when you've been around, the, when you're like an entrepreneur already, like you're willing to go out there and put things out there that might be, you know, sort of half cooked, but know that you can sort of in, you know, we're putting the plane together as, as it's taking off and you'll like figure it out once you're, you know, in the air and stuff. But when it's your first time and you have never done this before 
and you are afraid of failing and you're afraid of messing up your personal brand and you're afraid of letting down people and all that other stuff, like that part that you just talked about, which is the getting started part, I think that's the big challenge. I mean, how do you think about that? I totally agree. I mean, for someone like me, the pressure that would mount if I waited two years or three years and raised capital, that that Mm -hmm. gives me like the heebie-jeebies just thinking about it. Because then Mm -hmm. I not only have my own reputation on the the line, but I have others' reputation, others' money, like family and friends' money. Like that would be such pressure that I don't know if I would be able to launch and live out my passion in the way that I want. I think I'd have to have greater expectations for myself. And I worry that I might even crumble under those expectations. So I feel like the getting started can be such a hindrance mm. at the same time. And I love that this is FOMO sapiens and obviously you're wearing the FOMO cap. <laughs> I get FOMO every single day about what could have been, right? Sure. Like I, I love my life, Patrick. I love what I do. But then I think if I were still at LVMH, would I have, you know, I see the people that I was working with and now they're like, you know, CEO of this small jewelry brand that's somewhere in the world, or they've gotten somewhere really far in the corporate world after, you know, 10 years, 15 years. And I wonder like, oh, what if I'd done that? What if I'd taken the invest? What if I did the Neiman Marcus deal? What if I did the De Beers deal? What if I sold equity to someone and did something in the Middle East? But then every single time I come back, and this is where friends are helpful and clients are helpful, but they are the ones who are like, well, will you be happier? You might be wealthier, maybe not. You might have more impact because there's more people getting your product. That's a real positive to me. But will I be happier? And every single time thus far, you know, I'm not close to anything. But thus far, the answer has been, I don't think so. So on one hand, I'm happy and I obviously advocate this idea of starting slow, being passion-driven, steady. But I'm saying I still, to this day, Zamir, you know, 20, whatever year it is right now, I still feel like I, I wonder all the time, what else could I have been, would I have done? But I, I continue to believe in my heart that I made the right decision. Yeah, there's a new book out uh, that I have not read. So I'm going to quote a book I have not read yet, but I will read it. But I heard about it today over lunch, and it's by a professor at, at Harvard uh, called Arthur Brooks. He wrote it with Oprah. Yep. And apparently what they talk about is the fact, it's about happiness, right? And they talk about the fact that happiness, um, the, the sort of the difference between what you have and what you wish you had is like the, the, the more you can close that gap is the way mm. to increase happiness. And the easiest thing to do is to decrease what you wish you had. Not mm-hmm. meaning that you let you don't have goals and aspirations, but you sort of just say like, what do I really, you know, it's like the FOMO thing, right? FOMO is a, you know, we could all dream all day long about the things we, we're not doing. This is, fully, and I do the same thing, so I get you. But when we think critically <laughs> about, do I really want that? Do I really want to sell out? Do I want to do this thing? Would I have been happier in the corporate world working for somebody else where I can't be me all the time and be my awesome self and, you know, make me a part of the product? It's like all that stuff. You get sit down and think about it for a couple of minutes. You probably end up lowering what you think you want to be much closer to what you're actually doing. Mm-hmm. Well, when I hear that, I think about like, what is the value of the things that I want, right? So if mm-hmm. I think about wanting this bigger home or wanting this trip that I currently can't afford. Well, I want that because I want to be able to entertain more 
or I want to have adventures. Well, what's the adventure? Well, I want to meet new people. What do I want to do when I meet new people? Well, I want to learn their stories. When I entertain people in my bigger home, I want to learn about them. I want to celebrate them. I want to know about you know their love and their friends. Well, that all, all those beautiful things for me comes from sitting with my clients. Mm-hmm. It comes from my work. So if I sold out and did less of my work, I do it to get more money, to get more things, to bring me right back to where I am right now. And so it's almost like, what if I just focus on finding the source of those emotions versus the physical things that are meant to lead to those emotions? And when I go through that process, it's like, sketch more, meet more clients. There's things in my day that do not bring me that joy. <laughs> you know, I do run a business and honestly, I don't like running businesses. I, I, I do it because I know I can and I have to, and I've got extraordinary people on my team that I want to make sure are taken care of. But those hours of thinking about pricing and, you know, HR, <laughs> not as joyful <laughs> as the hours I spend with clients. So I go through that exercise, but it leads me to change the way I spend the hours of my day it doesn't lead me to want more or less things. But I think inherently it does lead me to want fewer things. All right, everybody. You know, this is a man who could make you a ring that you will never, ever, ever, ever forget about. You will love it every day. So you should definitely check him out. You can go find out more about the business at samirkassam.com. You can find him on socials at samirkassam, especially Instagram. Is Instagram very well done? Samir Kassam, founder of Samir Kassam Fine Jewelry. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Patrick. I've always had so much FOMO of not being here, and now I'm finally here. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMOSapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.